So anyways, tonight is going to be um, sexual intimacy part two. And so we're going to go ahead and get into that. Let me pray and then we'll start. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for each lady that you have brought here this evening. I am so grateful for your word and for the things that we can glean from it. I thank you that it guides our lives, that it has the power through your spirit to change our lives. Father, I pray that we would have hearts that desire to grow and change and to look at some of these things, perhaps areas where we are not thinking rightly, areas perhaps that we are not living rightly as well, and that we would be willing to submit to your will through the knowledge of your word and the power of your spirit. I pray that you would guide me tonight as I teach these things, that you would give me clarity of thought, and that you would use your spirit to give us understanding to your word. In your name I pray, amen. So I recently heard a quote from a book written over 30 years ago, and this little phrase kind of struck a chord with me because it's interesting. I had a similar thought a few months ago. So this is what the quote was. Marriage is two lumpish people joining together with all their faults. How can we expect total bliss from that? So I just it kind of made me chuckle a little bit. And the reason why is because at the marriage conference in the fall, I was sitting kind of toward the back, and Chris was teaching. I'm sitting there next to Craig, and Chris is talking about intimacy. And I was observing, just sitting there, looking around, at all of us very normal people. And you have to understand, I come from Southern California, where everything is about image, everything is about body, everything is about how you look, and of course, depending on where you're at. And so body shape is very important, how fit you are is very important, the style of clothing you wear is very important, all these things. And as I was, so, so that affects how you think about intimacy, right? Yes, well, it did for me anyways. And so as I'm sitting there looking around, thinking about, you know, we're all sitting with our husbands, and just considering that God is telling us that we are to be intimate together and we are to love it. And it is a beautiful, wonderful thing that God has created for our enjoyment. And all of a sudden, I was struck by the contrast of the worldly image of beauty and physique and style and all those things that have nothing to do with what God's word has to say. I do not have a perfect body, and I would dare say probably most of you do not either. But if we have the worldly mindset, then we're going to have these expectations of ourselves that we can never live up to, that God never meant for us to live up to. So reading that little quote right there, marriage is two lumpish people, I thought, that's exactly what I was thinking. We're just lumpish people. But, but lumpy people are supposed to have intimacy together, and they're supposed to enjoy it. It's a good thing that God has created, and it's not something that's supposed to be done in some worldly mindset of perfection. So all that is to say that as we get going, I just, I'm going to review a little bit here, but keeping that in mind, because we do not want to have the worldly mindset all we are is lumpish people obeying the word of God to please him and ultimately what? What do we say almost every single week? To bring glory and honor to him. That's our goal and it is our goal in intimacy as well. So we have kind of a lot to cover. You have a front and back to your outline tonight. So hopefully we'll be able to do all this. And I'm going to say we're just going to kind of like highlight across. There's so many things to say. Oh, and I wanted to show you books. So I'll get to this one in a second. <clears throat> so most of my uh, study today, the things that I'm going to talk about, came out of, I've mentioned this book multiple times. If you have not got it, I really highly suggest you get it. It's When Sinners Say I Do by Dave Harvey. I do think this probably is my favorite marriage book. I really like this book. 
Okay, so there was that one, and I'll be quoting from it as we go. So there was another one. This is just a little booklet. To be honest, I'm not even sure where I got it. I think I maybe got it at a counseling conference back in May. It's called The Marriage Bed by Ray Rhodes. It is very good, a quick read. Uh, this would be great to do with your husband, especially if he's not a huge reader or if you're not a huge reader. I would highly recommend it. He kind of just highlights the basics, but it's really good. He's got really good information in here. So I quote from that one as well. I have also mentioned this one lots of times as well, Sex and the Supremacy of Christ by John Piper and Justin Taylor. And actually, it's got a lot of different authors who wrote different chapters. So the chapter we're going to focus on today that I'm going to be reading out of is by Carolyn Mahaney. And she has written Sexual Intimacy, uh, a chapter really for women on that. So anyways, very good. And then this one I actually did not have time to read all the way through. I've read parts of it. Craig has listened to the whole thing. This was also, uh, let me tell you the title, Intended for Pleasure by Ed Wheat and Gay Wheat. Um, this one they recommended at the conference, the marriage conference, and this has a lot of practical how-to. He's a physician, and so if you are wondering how things work or you're struggling with things like that, just practical, physical things, fantastic book as well. So anyways, the, uh, most of what I'm saying tonight is coming out of those books, and I just wanted you to have those things as resources if you would like them. And as I said, we're going to do just a tiny bit of review here as we kind of move into this. But I've got several points, and they're not all entirely related. So because I wanted to hit all these different things. So we are just going to kind of go from one point to the next, and it doesn't mean that they're all necessarily going to flow one right into the other. But I do think all of the different things are important, and that's why I have included them here. So that kind of gives you an overview of where we're going long. Okay, so A on your outline, sexual intimacy is for God's glory, and we have mentioned that multiple times. So uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Obviously, that includes sexual intimacy. Everything in life that we do should all be done for God's glory, and that includes everything. And I think sometimes what we do, and I think I maybe mentioned this last time we were together, sometimes what we do is we tend to separate intimacy from our spiritual life, and I'm not quite sure how that happens, but, but the broad principles of Scripture actually help us to understand how we should function in intimacy. So, number one, do I want God's glory or my desires in intimacy. Now, we've said that in other areas before, but we need to consider it also in intimacy. I must, I must constantly evaluate my own heart. When I think about intimacy, what motivates my thoughts toward it? Is it my desires, or is it God's desires? And it can be whether I want it tonight, or I don't want it tonight, or ever, for that matter. What is it that's driving those desires? And we have to evaluate. We have to think about, is it God's glory that's driving my interest or lack of interest? Or is it my own desires? Am I approaching it from a biblical perspective or a worldly perspective? Do I understand God's purpose and design for intimacy? And I tried to somewhat cover that last week. I don't know that I did a very effective job of that. But that was the goal. But we need to have a right biblical understanding of it. If I have a wrong worldly understanding, expectations, associations, or assumptions of intimacy, it is going to hinder my ability to seek God's glory. That's really important, and I'm going to kind of break that down here. So number two, seek God's glory by thinking biblically rather than worldly. So Colossians 3, 1 and 2, another broad principle here. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, if you are a believer, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on things that are on earth. Now, we need to be thinking about the way that God thinks about things. We're not thinking in an earthly, worldly mindset. We are thinking... Uh, with our mindset on things above, meaning godly things, spiritual things, the way that God explains and views things. 
If we truly desire God's glory, we need to spend time considering those things I just mentioned. So we need to consider our motives, what's driving our motives, and this is on your outline. We need to consider our desires, what drives our desires. We need to consider our associations or our previous associations and how that is affecting the way we're thinking. We need to consider our assumptions. What are the conclusions that we have drawn? What are our assumptions about intimacy? Are they biblical? Are they worldly? And we need to consider our expectations. What is it that we want to get from it? What is it that we think should happen? And are those things guided by the world or are they guided by God's word? All of these things need to be lined up against what scripture teaches. Where we discover that we have wrong thinking, we need to take that thought captive and change our thoughts to mirror scripture. This is really, really important. We have to take our thoughts and line them up with scripture. This is in every area of life. In order to be sanctified, we need to identify where we are thinking wrongly because how we think affects how we act. And so we have to measure those things up. And if we're thinking from a worldly perspective, we are going to act in a worldly way. If we are thinking with a biblical perspective, then we will act in a manner that pleases God and brings glory and honor to him. So this is done through memorizing scripture and meditating. So what is meditating? Thinking about the truths from scripture and how they apply to our lives. We th this, this requires time. It requires energy. It requires effort to consider the teaching of scripture, and to evaluate my desires, all those things I just listed for you. We evaluate those things and we consider, is it biblical or is it worldly on this side? And always trying to then, after we consider those things, if we find sin, then what do we do? We confess it to the Lord. We repent, meaning we turn and we walk the other way. We live a different way. If that is not taking place in our life in any arena, we are not going to be growing in sanctification. So we take all those principles, and then what do we do? We apply them to the area of intimacy. This is how we change our thinking from worldly thinking to biblical thinking. If we identify sinful attitudes and actions in the area of sexual intimacy, we need to repent like I already said, by confessing our sin to God and turning from that sin. So number three, seek God's glory by identifying or eliminating unbiblical, or maybe we should say and eliminating, unbiblical or sinful thinking. So A, we need to eliminate excessive exposure to sexuality in our culture. So I just have, I think, three or four things here that help us to consider what that is. What are these things that we need to identify or eliminate that cause us to think unbiblically? So, uh, small a, eliminate excessive exposure to sexuality in our culture. So, I would say here, just on a very, very practical level, be careful what you put in your mind. Be careful what you watch with the movies you watch, the TV shows that you watch, do not, I beg you, do not watch things where people are jumping into bed together. It will affect how you think about sexual intimacy. And it will distort it because it's coming from a worldly perspective. Do not fill your mind with things that have all kinds of sexual innuendos because it changes how you think. I think I maybe said, I don't know if it was this Bible study or Friday morning, but I heard a couple of months ago, um, pastor talking and he said, garbage in, garbage out. If we are putting garbage into our minds, what is going to come, in, come out? And we think, well, I know it's wrong. Therefore, it doesn't affect me. It does affect you more than you realize because it sears your conscience. Be so careful what you allow to influence your heart and mind. 
Paul wrote this in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, he was talking about them actually participating in it, but I do think the broad principle is true as well. Don't participate in entertainment that is ungodly, that is worldly. So also, please do not go searching on the internet to find answers if you are struggling in the area of intimacy. You open yourself up to all kinds of sinful, worldly ideas, solutions, and pursuits. You can stumble upon all kinds of things. Pictures of pornography, descriptions that may as well be pornography, Be careful. Don't go looking for answers on the internet. Find an older woman to talk to. Find a counselor. We have counselors here in the church that you can talk to. Be so guarded that the information that you are getting is biblical so that you can think rightly. Those worldly things will confuse you and lead you far from God's design for intimacy with your husband. Small letter B. Identify wrong thinking from past promiscuous sins. Often sexual sin from the past can hinder us from thinking rightly about God's design for sexual intimacy. Begin by considering your sin against God and confess your sin to him. He promises to forgive. Because if you have had a life where you had promiscuity before you were a believer or when you were a teenager, a lot of times guilt You can heap guilt and condemnation upon yourself. There's no need for that. Because Romans 8.1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does 1 John 1.9 say? We learn that as like three and five-year-olds, right? Such a powerful verse. If we confess our sin, he is righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we recognize our sin and we confess it to the Lord and repent of it, he promises to forgive us. And so instead of having these thoughts that we keep thinking about our unworthiness and our dirtiness and all these things, instead we claim the promises that God has given us in his word and we focus our mind on those things and we preach the truth to ourselves so that we are not in utter despair because of past sin. It's critical that we understand these things. And of course, 1 Corinthians 6.11, which I just love this verse, Paul says, such were some of you. You were immoral. You were unclean. You were sinful, but you were washed. You were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. By faith, you accept God's forgiveness. When you are tempted to condemn yourself and wallow in your past sin, take those thoughts captive and meditate on the goodness and love and forgiveness of God. Do not allow your mind to dwell on your past sin. Instead, rest in the finished work of Christ on the cross who paid the penalty for your sin and worship him with a heart of thankfulness because we aren't who we used to be. We have been washed. We are a new creation in Christ. And even if you sinned as a believer, that doesn't mean that God is limited and he condemns you because you should have known better. His forgiveness is rich and free. And so we live in that and we think those things instead of being held in chains by past sin. So then, see, I told you we're just skimming over the top here. So small c, identify wrong thinking from past sexual sins against you. Perhaps this is the most difficult area to correct wrong thinking because these sins often occur in childhood. The perception of the experience often blurs the lines between truth and lies. It is critical to understand God's heart of love toward you, even at that time, and his purpose for trials. 
The only way you can do this is by studying the word and comparing your understanding and experiences against the truth of the word of God. How did, and these are questions that you could ask, how did the other person sin against you? Because it was sinful, but see, that's where the truth and the lies can get very blurred because they can tell you you're the one sinning. And if you don't take these things and compare them to the truth of Scripture, you may be confused on what is right and what is wrong. And so this is why we have to go to the Word and recognize how did the other person sin against me? What were the lies you were told that you believed as truth at that point? point of your life? How did your experience distort your understanding of God and his word? Because is that not what Satan wants to do? He wants to distort from the time we were very young our understanding of the truth of God's word, ultimately so that we will be destroyed in our sin, so that we will not want to have anything to do with God. Or not understand the character of God. So I think on your outline, I think this is on your outline. Using scripture, learn to discern between truth and lies. <clears throat> and then the next one under that, learn how to respond to the sin against you without sinning yourself. And I understand there is a lot more to say here at this point in our study tonight, and I don't have time to get into all that. So if this is a place that you wrestle, please, please come and talk to me. You can talk to Elisa. You can talk to Rachel or maybe somebody in your small group, one of the ladies in your small group. I realize that these are deep things, but I do want to at least address them briefly. So as I already said, learn how to respond to the sin against you without sinning yourself. Even though the sin committed against you was not a result of your sin, you must guard your heart from responding sinfully. Even though you are not responsible for the initial sin, you are responsible to God for your response to the sin. Such sins as fear, hatred, bitterness, unforgiveness, anger at God, or self-pity and condemnation are all very common, and I'm sure there's other ones as well. And they must be identified and confessed to our Heavenly Father. Because even though you did not begin that sin, you did not, you were an unwilling participant in somebody else's sin against you, your response if it's sinful, is your responsibility to confess before God because those sinful responses can take us away and far from the Lord. So we have to identify what are those sinful responses and bring those things into submission against the word of God. So you may have thought things about who you are and such as being dirty or defiled or ugly because of the things that happen, those things are not true. You have been washed by the blood of Christ. You have been sanctified. You have been justified. And so instead of thinking these thoughts of condemnation and, and unworthiness and dirty, all those things that would accompany those previous experiences, you look into the word of God and you see what he has to say about who you are and you fix your mind on those things and you worship and praise your God that those things do not define who you are. Identifying how others sinned against you by recognizing their sin against God and God's attitude toward it is necessary. God hates sin, and he hates the sin that was committed against you. Once you compare their actions to Scripture and see how it falls short of the glory of God, you can then extend forgiveness, keeping your heart from bitterness. As you are able to look at it and go, that was wrong, that was sinful, it displeased God. Then you can think rightly, comparing the truth and the lies like I mentioned earlier. And this is actually taken from Carolyn Mahaney. She included this in her chapter, and I wanted to read it to you as well. 
It's a testimony of a lady here. Her name is Glenda Revel. She was born out of wedlock to, to a promiscuous mother who hated her all her life. And she was sexually abused repeatedly by her stepfather. Glenda knew the meaning of suffering. And yet, despite the anguish of her situation, her testimony is of the redeeming power of Christ. She explains, Sexual defilement of a child is a monstrous sin, and the rape of a child's spirit is on equal footing. The damage from either would appear irreversible. But as Dr. David Jeremiah has said, our God has the power to reverse the irreversible. It is true, for I have tasted of his cure from both, and it fills me with the longing for him, for Christ, that the happiest of childhoods could never have given. Christ showed me Calvary once more. I saw the horror of my sin, nailing the Son of God to the miserable cross, torturing him, mocking him, spitting on him. Yet he had forgiven me freely. No one had committed such atrocities against me. How could I do anything less than forgive? And forgiveness came. And with it came healing, complete peace and freedom, absolute freedom to serve my God and to enjoy his love and peace now and forevermore. There is peace with forgiveness. There is healing. So I did want to introduce this to you. This little booklet is a wonderful little booklet. It's called Sexual Abuse, Beauty for Ashes by Robert Kelman. Kelman? I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Anyways, what he does in this booklet is he goes through the story of Tamar and all that she went through, and it, it, he breaks it down and talks about where those who should have protected her didn't and how to think about those things and, and the, the breach of trust and the, the brokenness of hope and various different things. So if this is an area that you struggle, we may have some more of these across the street. This is fantastic. I would highly recommend it. <clears throat> Satan delights to start when we are very young by twisting and distorting our understanding of our sexuality to set us on the path of destruction. Sin destroys, and if Satan can lead us down a path of sinfulness, we will destroy our lives by our own sin. That is why our sexuality becomes secondary to our desire to bring glory to God, even when we have been sinned against, even when we have been promiscuous in times gone by. Only as we desire to please God will we have the motivation to work through the challenges that lead to joyful intimacy with our husbands. See, it's all connected, and that's where we're going now, to intimacy with our husbands. Only the desire to bring glory to God will motivate us to overcome such huge hurdles, and that is precisely why God's glory must reign supreme in our lives. And I will say, I realize not everybody has probably had um, sexual abuse or even promiscuity early on in life. But remember that first point that I said, be careful what you put into your mind. Putting worldly explanations, worldly solutions into your mind can still set us on a path toward sinfulness. So we have to think rightly and be guarded even in those things. So now B, capital B, on your outline, kind of moving to a little bit of a different topic here. I guess it's still kind of related. Sin that kills sexual intimacy. So... Um, I'm not sure who this quote is by. I think this is uh, Dave Harvey. Yes, it is. Okay, so he just has a little line here that I'm going to read, but I, I liked what he said. When sin becomes bitter, sin is the thing that's bitter, then marriage becomes sweet. If we learn to hate our sin, guess what it's going to do to our marriages? Because what destroys our marriages? Our sin. And what destroys intimacy? Sin. And so when sin becomes bitter to us, then our marriages have the opportunity to be sweet. And intimacy in marriage then has the ability to be sweet. Sin taints, distorts, and destroys what sex is meant to be. 
So in order to better understand the value and beauty of sex, we need to begin by looking into Scripture to see the greatest excuse me, the greatness of our God and measuring our assumptions, expectations, and understanding of sexuality by it. As God reveals our sin to us, we must, as I already said, repent, bringing our will into subjection with the will of God. So I've got four areas of sinfulness that we're going to talk about. The first one, number one, is selfishness. And worldly thinking promotes indulgence and satisfaction of self. It asserts a self-centered approach to sex that condones and encourages pleasing self as most important. It is a desire to get your own way. No matter which way you approach intimacy, if you are thinking about it from a worldly mindset, you are going to be pursuing it in with an attitude of selfishness. So interestingly, This isn't only in wanting to engage in intimacy. It also includes, so this idea of selfishness, it includes depriving your husband if you are not interested. If our selfishness drives our desire for sex, we will focus on what we want to get from it. If selfishness drives our desire not to have sex, we will be frustrated when our husband wants to engage in it. We have to guard our hearts from selfishness. And we'll probably mention selfishness a little bit more. I don't, I'm not going to go into that extensively, but I think it needs to at least be on our radar so that we're considering our own hearts. Am I being selfish with my desire for it or am I being selfish with my lack of desire for it? So number two, and actually the next, this one and the, the following two points are taken from when sinners say I do. So just so that you know that. So laziness. And he says, Dave Harvey writes this, the most common fruits of this heart condition are passivity and unresponsiveness. We begin to let our appearance go. We grow comfortable with bedroom boredom. We tolerate a lack of sexual desire and settle for one partner doing all the initiating. Girls, I think probably... That would be the majority of us, not all of us, but the majority of us, that could be us, that we just let him do all the initiating. Sometimes sexual sloth comes from being busy with wrong things. Do we have our priorities correct? And sexual intimacy requires effort. It just does. The world tries to make us believe that it is the result of spontaneous passion born out of love that comes easily with little or no effort. If you watch any movies or anything, see commercials, that's always what it is, right? In reality, what the world is really promoting is selfish, sinful lust. That's where this crazy passion comes from, not that we can't be passionate in our marriages, but if we think that that's the way it should always be, we're going to be really disappointed. And we're probably not going to function very well in intimacy because it requires work. It requires effort. And I couldn't help to think about what Proverbs 9.17 says, stolen waters or stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. So yeah, this worldly, lustful passion, it is sweet in the beginning. But the verse after that says, But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Worldly, ungodly passion that the world promotes, that we think now is normal, and what we should be functioning is in, actually leads to the depths of Sheol. It's destructive. So we have to understand what God's word says. God's plan for intimacy in marriage is delightful and leads to long-lasting joy and pleasure because it is based on biblical love that seeks to bless and serve the other person. However, these things cannot be achieved unless we make the effort. It must become a priority both in time and in energy. 
We need to plan for it, reserve energy for it, and initiate it. We can't expect to have sweet intimacy with our husbands if we are complacent and lazy in our efforts. I fight this as much as the next girl. Because you know what? I am a very task-oriented person, and I have my long list of things to do that I'm going to accomplish. And I have to stop and realize, you, you haven't taken your husband into consideration. That's wrong. It's selfish. You have wrong priorities. You need to get your priorities in line. Rather than focusing all my long list of things to do, that I would love my husband well that I would prioritize his needs above my own, which is always to get my tasks accomplished. But it's wrong when it's harmful and selfish. So number three, unbelief. Again, Dave Harvey says, and this is a little bit long, but I felt like what he had to say here was really helpful, so I'm just going to read it anyways. When we allow unbelief to tangle its roots around our hearts, we begin to believe its lies. Things like, I can't enjoy sex. Things will never change. The past will always bother me. I can't meet his expectations. Or perhaps the the lies are aimed at your spouse. You can't understand me. You can't meet my needs. You don't know what it's like to be raised in my home. You don't understand that when you touch me, I think about him touching me. You can't understand all the baggage I bring. I'm not talking about the normal questions and doubt we face in times of difficulty. I'm talking about an approach to sex that says, in effect, this is simply beyond God's reach. For whether spoken or unspoken, each of these lies ultimately point heavenward. God can't answer this prayer. That's one of the thoughts we might have, a wrong thought. Or we might think his promises can't apply to my situation. God can't change my desire. I can't trust God. Grace can't reach this far. This type of unbelief is devastating, not only to our sex lives, but to our entire spiritual existence. It calls into question the very nature of God and places our own feeble, inconsistent selves at the center of reality. And we do not want to be at the center because God is not glorified when we are at the center. And so we have to take our thoughts of unbelief captive, measure them up against the truths of Scripture. And if any of those thoughts go through your mind, recognize them for what they are, a lack of faith, a lack of belief in your God that is giving you the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome sin in your life. And then you, you focus on the truths of Scripture dismissing ungodly thoughts and then you act out of the truth of scripture by faith asking for the strength of the Holy Spirit to help you to do it. This kind of thinking is sinful and doesn't align with the teaching of scripture. These kinds of thoughts must be confessed and repented of and the truth of scripture needs to fill your mind in order to counter these sinful thoughts. God never commands us to do anything. Listen carefully to this. God never commands us to do anything that he doesn't enable us to do through the knowledge of his word and the power of his spirit. Those are some hopeful words. God gives us a command, and then he gives us the Holy Spirit that enables us to live out fully the command that he's given us. We can do it because God strengthens us with his own power through the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean it will be easy because we always want it to be easy, right? That doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be easy. But it can be done. By faith we obey his word and by his spirit he supplies the ability. So then number four is bitterness. And again, this is Dave Harvey. Bitterness differs from unbelief merely in the intensity and depth or to the degree 
of its rebellion. So listen to the comparison here. It's really that bitterness takes unbelief a step farther. So unbelief says, I can't do this. Well, bitterness says, I won't do this. Unbelief tells the spouse, you can't change. And bitterness declares, you won't change. Unbelief claims, God can't... Did this turn off? Oh, wow, that was weird. Sorry. God can't affect what I like and dislike. Well, bitterness says, God won't affect them. Unbelief leans away from God's promises. Bitterness slams the door. You defrauded me, and I won't trust you. You didn't, ex- you didn't exercise self-control before we were married. You won't after. You get the idea there of bitterness. Bitterness is one of the most common causes of neglected sex. From the soil of anger and unresolved conflicts, it grows quickly into a virulent weed that chokes out intimacy. Married people turned bitter, excuse me, married people turned bitter, use their bodies as a weapon, a weapon that harms by withholding, a weapon used to punish the other person for sinning against us. This calls for forgiveness. When we cast off God's truth and embrace lies, our marriages and our faith suffer together. But we need not, must not, tolerate these paralyzing patterns of sin. Instead, let us look for them, admit it whenever we find them, and seek God for forgiveness and the power to repent and change. See, the most wonderful thing about recognizing your sin is that it can be repented of. You can change. It's, it's not a disease. You can look into the word of God. You can see your sin. And by the power of the spirit, you can change. Power has no, or sin has no power over you except for what we give it. And so We need to recognize these things so that we can be free from it, so that we can actively put it off. So now, moving on, abrupt switch. C, capital C, seek to cultivate a Christ-like attitude toward your husband. So we need to put off the sinful ways of thinking, and we need to put on a right way of thinking. So that is to seek to cultivate this Christ-like attitude toward your husband. So it's more than just an intimacy. This is how we think about him in general. So that's kind of where we're going right here. So striving to have a Christ-like attitude toward our husbands in every area of our marriage will enable us to keep a Christ-like attitude toward him in intimacy. If we do not have his good in mind in a general sense, it is going to be hard to have his good in mind in the bedroom. What are your normal, everyday thoughts, expectations for your husband? Are they for his good? Because if you don't have a loving attitude toward your husband, just in general things, I can tell you, you're not going to have a loving attitude toward him with sex either. So considering or consider the following ways you can practice loving your husband in all areas of your marriage. So I have just a few things listed here just to kind of get you thinking. So number one, pray for him. How often do you spend time praying for your husband? Pray for him as he goes to work. Pray for him if he's a daddy. Pray for him as he interacts in your marriage. Pray for him as he leads. Pray for him as he serves within the church. Pray for him that his eyes would be protected from looking at things he shouldn't. Pray for his holiness. Pray for your husband. Number two, delight in serving him. So I'm not talking about grudgingly doing things for him. Delight in it. Find joy in serving him. Doing things that he would appreciate, even if he'll never notice it. Okay? Delight in serving him, even in the things he'll never notice. Have you ever come home and you didn't realize when you left that you'd left all the dishes all over and you came home and you didn't notice that it was clean? 
I've done that before. I did it to my kids sometimes. <laughs> They'd go through all the work to clean up the kitchen, and you walk home and you never say anything because you didn't remember that you left it a mess. Well, we need to be careful that we don't get angry at our husbands if they don't notice the things that we do because we don't always notice the things they do for us either. Number three, encourage him, encourage him by complimenting what he does well. Look for the things that he excels in. Look for the things he's putting forth effort in. Young wives are usually married to young husbands. Young husbands are learning how to lead. They're learning how to be husbands. They're learning how to be fathers. So when he's learning, encourage him in that. Compliment him. Tell him you appreciate it. Number four, be quick to forgive him when he sins against you. Don't hold his sin against him with an unforgiving heart because where is it going to end up? In bitterness. Don't do that. Learn to forgive. And that sometimes is going to require conversation. You're going to have to talk these things through. But be willing to put forth the effort. Number five, consider how often Consider often, not consider how often, consider often how to do good toward him. Consider ways that you can do kind things for him, that he would appreciate, that shows him that you love him, that you care. This is one of the areas that we get complacent in. We just get busy with all the duties of life, and he has his job titles, duties that he does, and we have ours. And so we just kind of live side by side. Don't live like that. Constantly be seeking ways to do him good. And that's from Proverbs 31, right? She does him good all the days of her life. So Ray Rhodes from the marriage bed, he says this, sexual intimacy cannot be separated from life intimacy. At the foundation is a growing relationship with God through Christ. From that relationship grows closeness between a husband, wife, and even children. Daily intimacy reflected in words of kindness, thoughtful deeds, and family togetherness give depth to the intimate, sexual, and secret time shared between a godly husband and wife. See, our loving kindness in intimacy is born out of a life practice of that. If we aren't practicing it in day-to-day life, you think you're gonna, you're gonna just delight in thinking about him when you jump in bed together? You're gonna be selfish then if you have a life practice of being selfish toward him. We have to have an attitude of kindness and love and grace toward him in all things. And then intimacy flows out of that with a beautiful God-honoring interaction together. So then D, sexual intimacy should be a selfless expression of love toward your husband. So the topic of intimacy falls under the broad principles of Scripture. These principles help us to understand how we should function in intimacy. And I kind of already said that earlier, but I want to read Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 39 here. Because this gives us kind of the overarching guideline for how we live life. And you may know what I'm talking about here. It says this, And he said to him, so Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this, we don't separate intimacy from this statement that Jesus made here. First, we love the Lord our God, and from that then flows love for our husband. The biblical approach to intimacy is to seek to first please God, then to please your spouse. Our personal pleasure is secondary. However, intimacy is a sweet reward when both husbands and wives seek to accomplish this. And you remember from Philippians 2, 3, and 4. And I know, I feel like I refer to this so often, but it's just such a practical a couple of verses here. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. 
Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This is so true when it comes to intimacy with our husbands. Do nothing from selfishness. And yet how often can we look at our hearts and our lives, our expectations, our desires, and see remnants of selfishness there? For whatever reason, it should not be a part of who we are because we have been washed. We've been sanctified and justified. We are a new creation. We don't have to be enslaved to our selfishness any longer. Dave Harvey says this, God intends for our greatest joy in marriage to come from being a primary source of joy to our spouse. God has designed the sexual relationship as a key expression of this reality. For when sex is at its best, my delight and enjoyment of sex is almost indistinguishable from the pleasure experienced by my spouse. The joy of sex, then, is the pleasure derived from giving our spouse his or her, he wrote to both husband and wife here, their conjugal rights. Notice Paul doesn't emphasize taking from our spouse our conjugal rights, but instead emphasizing the giving of these rights to one another. Paul locates the key for great sex as generosity. Generosity should be the thing that motivates us as we are intimate with our husbands. A selfless attitude to give to them pleasure. So then, moving on again. Capital E. Practical ideas for intimacy with your husband. So again, this is taken from Carolyn Mahaney. And these are her five points, and I just thought they were really good, so we're just going to roll with it, because why reinvent the wheel, right? So number one, she says, be attractive. So Song of Solomon 115 says, how beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves. And of course, we know Song of Solomon, they describe things differently than how we would. But the point is, is that he is appreciating her beauty. And he says again in uh, chapter 7, verse 6, how beautiful and how delightful you are, my love, with all your charms. God has created men to be visually stimulated. Looking attractive to our husbands is important. So, of course, we know this is going to be very different between husbands, right? What your husband prefers will likely be different than what my husband prefers. So, we need to know our husband's preferences and fix our appearance to please him. Taking care of ourselves is an expression of our love for our husbands and shows our desire to give them preference. So, does he like your hair long? Does he like your hair short? Does he not care and he just wants you to surprise him? Some guys are like that. Does he prefer you to be thin or does he prefer you to be a little curvy? Does he like lots of makeup or a little makeup? Does he like lingerie or just straight out of the shower? Find out what he likes and endeavor to please him. Every man is different. What is it that your man loves about you? And do you neglect to do those things? Do you neglect to take care of yourself? Craig has been working from home for a while now. And, like, I'm not real good about getting up in the morning and fixing myself. And so some days I can very easily sit. So we have what I refer to as my morning clothes because I have my jammies that I sleep in that don't have a lot to them. And so I put on my, you know, my little... I guess they're yoga pants or something in my sweatshirt, and this is how I sit. So I sit there in my big mess with all my books piled all over the place until noon. I'm like, I should go up and maybe brush my teeth, put on some jeans or something, give it a little effort. But we need to think about those things. We need to think, what is it, especially, you know, he's coming in and out, whatever he's doing, and I'm sitting there looking like the world's biggest slob. <laughs> like, that's probably not attractive. So we need to consider, though, being attractive. I was a little convicted by this. Like, oh, maybe tomorrow morning I'll just get up and fix myself. Okay. So Ray Rhodes writes this. 
Do you prepare your body? So I, I appreciated like kind of just taking this a step further. He says, do you prepare your body for sexual expression? I think many couples make a terrible mistake when they do not properly care for and regularly prepare their body for physical intimacy. Cleanliness, sweet smells, bodily strength, diet, exercise, bodily oils, perfumes, all may facilitate a healthy sexual experience. If any of those things would be a benefit, then use them. Try them. Don't be stinky and dirty. I don't know that any of you have that issue. <laughs> but, but we do need to consider these things. Like, are we presenting ourselves lovely to our husbands so that when they look at us, they do think that we're beautiful and they're thankful for their beautiful wife? We need to keep in mind, now we just got to take this even yet a step further, that beauty without the heart of Christ is not attractive. We must not only focus on our physical appearance, but on our hearts as well. Craig has told me over and over and over again, I love when you smile. And sometimes I've said, oh, honey, I'm sorry I didn't put makeup on today. He says, it doesn't matter. I just like it when you smile. Because you know what? Smiles reflect the heart. If I'm crabby and grouchy, I'm not going to be smiling. If I'm overwhelmed by all the duties of life, I'm not going to be smiling. But when I'm smiling, it shows a joy that's in my heart, overflowing. And that's what he loves more than anything else. Proverbs 31.30. Oh, my goodness. I just saw the time. Okay, so Proverbs 31.30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. This is our goal. We need to seek to fear the Lord. So we're going to kind of run through these things. <clears throat> be available. So the bride in Song of Solomon understood this concept because she said, I am my beloved's and my beloved's beloved is mine. So we need to make sure that we are available so that being that I am his, I'm available to him when he would like me to be available. So Carolyn Mahaney wrote this, As husband and wife, we belong entirely and unreservedly to each other. My body is his possession and his body is mine. We are to give ourselves without qualification and not withhold the pleasure of sex. The only exception to this rule is for the activity of prayer and then only by mutual agreement for a limited time. So she quotes this person who says, we, need, we must heed this admonition and offer no excuses. She says, as I once heard a man say, I have heard many excuses for not having sex. Not in the mood, headache, too tired, don't have time. Prayer and fasting has never been one of them. <laughs> yeah, we're not guilty of that, are we? Okay, so number three, be anticipatory. Prepare mentally for sex. Our thoughts have a huge impact on our attitude toward intimacy. If we spend little or no time considering and thinking about it, it is unlikely that we will desire it at 10.30 at night after a long day. We need to prepare for it by thinking about it. So Carolyn wrote, fantasizing about our husbands throughout the day will heighten our sexual longing. And I was going to read from Song of Solomon, but I'm not going to do this right now. But here's the reference. You can look at it later. Uh, Song of Solomon 5, 10 through 16, just to see how that's exactly what she is doing in the book there is she is fantasizing and thinking about her husband. The wife's sensual musings culminated in the exclamation, he is altogether desirable. Do you see how her passion was ignited by fantasizing about her husband? God has furnished us with imaginations, and we should use them to daydream about our husbands. So reserve energy for intimacy with your husband. If necessary, take a brief nap while the kids are napping. Think about your upcoming schedule and consider which days or evenings would work well for a little extra time together. Be careful to prioritize intimacy with your husband so that it doesn't get squashed out of your life. We have to be thinking about it or it will just get pushed to the sidelines. Number four, be aggressive. So this is your memory verse. If I don't know if you've already looked at it. Song of Solomon 7, 10 through 12. It says this. 
I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the country. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us rise early and go to the vineyards. Let us see whether the vine has budded and its blossoms have opened and whether the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. So just real quick here from the little tiny note in my Bible, this is what it says. She takes the initiative in lovemaking. That's the whole point of these verses. So as you are memorizing it, that's the whole point. I got that just for you. So you take the initiative. So I really appreciated this right here um, that Carolyn Mahaney shared actually from another woman. But it's funny because one of the lines from this is something that I, have re- that I read a while ago, but I have reflected on it many times. So she says this, are you in love with your husband? Not, do you love him? I know you do. He has been around a long time and you're used to him. He is the father of your children, but are you in love with him? How long has it been since your heart really squeezed when you looked at him? Why is it you have forgotten the things that attracted you to him at first? By the grace of God, I want you to start changing your thought pattern. Tomorrow morning, get your eyes off the toaster or the baby bottles long enough to look at him. Don't you see the way his coat fits his shoulders? Look at his hands. Do you remember when just to look at his strong hands made your heart lift? Well, look at him and remember. Then loose your tongue and tell him you love him. Flirt with your husband. Try to anticipate what he would like. So Carolyn adds a helpful consideration that I really think is important here. And she says this. Let me add here that I have occasionally counseled women whose husbands had less desire for sexual relations than they had. This challenging situation can often produce confusion, pain, and even fear. However, it should not hinder you from pursuing a God-glorifying marriage. If necessary, seek godly counsel. And remember to put your trust in God. He is at work in your marriage for your good and for his glory. So number five, be adventurous. So be willing to try new things, new places, new positions. Learn to have fun. Learn to laugh. Learn to communicate. Ray Rhodes wrote, The Song of Solomon seems to be primarily about the love between a man and a woman and seems to especially underline the erotic expressions of such love. We must not miss the freedom of expression that is evident in the descriptions. So then he kind of sums up some of the things from Song of Solomon. The husband and wife kiss, engage in erotic speech, taste, Touch, admire one another's bodies, smell, feast upon one another, drink and daydream or fantasize about one another. The communication between the two is vivid, graphic, poetic, and lovely. So the adventure of sexual intimacy doesn't only include intercourse. Enjoy making out. Enjoy all the wonderful aspects of intimacy with your husband. Take baths together, whatever it is. Learn to have fun. It should be fun. It should be pleasurable. So F is communication is vital to sweet intimacy. So I'm just going to, I have a list of questions here, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but just to get you thinking. You need to be communicating what your preferences are. Does your husband know what you prefer in the marriage bed? Do you know what he prefers? Do you communicate when you are engaged in intimacy so that you can express your preferences or your love to him? Have you communicated what times are best or what days are best? Have you helped him understand you? This is really critical. Husbands don't just naturally understand us. A lot of times if we don't tell them, They don't know. They're not women. They don't think like women. We have to help them understand. So that means we have to communicate. And I will say this. Depending on where you are at in your stage of marriage, you may be a little embarrassed to talk about really intimate things with your husband. If you are, that's okay. 
turn out the light, put your head under the blanket, and just talk to him. I did that on multiple occasions early on in marriage because I was too embarrassed to have him see my face. But he had to know. He had to know. I had to tell him. So even if you're embarrassed, you still have to tell him. If you have to write it in a letter, write it in a letter. But he's never going to know if you don't communicate. You must tell him. And seek to know his heart as well. So then, G, rest in God's sovereignty in the challenges. Sexual intimacy must be free from sin like we've already said, although not necessarily free from challenges because intimacy is going to have challenges that come with it. So number one, learn to laugh at the failures. Sometimes things are just not going to work quite right. Learn to laugh and keep a light heart toward the failures. There's sometimes when you get done and it's like, what in the world just happened? And you know what? You just look at each other and laugh and go, well, tomorrow, that was a failure. Number two, be patient with the interruptions. Perhaps children create the most interruptions, whether it's little ones who wake up crying just as you are beginning to enjoy your time together or teenagers that come to the door with the intention of a two-hour conversation. How many of you have been there? (laughs) Keep in mind that God is sovereign over those interruptions, and learn to laugh. Wink and smirk at your husband while your child's back is turned, knowing you can try again later. (laughs) Number three, guard your heart from discouragement when things don't work right. I know sometimes various things in life, physical challenges, health issues, pregnancy, postpartum, injuries, age, etc., It is important that we rest in God's sovereignty, knowing that the challenges are from him for our good so that we can respond without sin. We have to learn to roll with the punches of life with a sweet attitude and a desire to bring God glory. And number four, last one here, respond gracefully to the unexpected. Be okay with the unexpected. When you have a special date night planned or you have booked a hotel for a weekend getaway and your child gets sick or your husband has to work late or someone has an emergency at church, learn to rest in God's sovereign plan. We need to hold our expectations and plans lightly so that we can keep right hearts when things change so that God will be glorified. Keep in mind that loving our husbands brings glory to God, and that should be our goal in everything that we do, even in intimacy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your beautiful, wonderful word that gives us hope, that gives us direction, that gives us purpose, that guides our lives. And Father, even in this area of intimacy, it's so important that we think rightly, that we think biblically. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to make the effort necessary to think rightly about these things so that you are honored and glorified and so that we are able to have strong and healthy marriages. I pray that as we go to our small groups that our time of discussion would be honoring to you and a benefit to us. In your name we pray. Amen.